Hello, and welcome to Dice Try, the RPG and storytelling podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Schaub. Hello, and welcome to the new episode of Dice Try. I am your host, Daniel Schaub. I am here with Paul Dixon, Earl Kim, Crystal Allen, and our audio engineer, GTM, which of course stands for Grab the Microphone. (laughs) Grab that. How is everybody doing during this um, uh, impressive heat wave here in Los Angeles? As we record this episode, I believe it was 120 yesterday. Yep. 121 up in Sherman. Oh, no. uh, Woodland Hills, I believe. Yeah. At least we do have power today. We did not have we did not have issues of our power shutting off and things shutting off and things are better today. Yeah. I haven't been outside in two days. <laughs> nice fall. Nice. I was gonna ask, what do you guys do when there's such a an oppressive heat? <laughs> yeah. Can't exactly go to the beach or the pool right now. No. How do you how do you combat the uh I found myself chewing on a lot of ice yesterday. Showers. Ice packs, definitely. Yeah, some ice packs on us yesterday. Not to get too graphic, but uh, in the privacy of my own home, I don't wear clothes. So, oh yeah, that oh yeah, that helps. Yeah. I also put a yoga mat on my bed when I wanted to lie down on my bed because the sheets were too much. <laughs> yeah, my, I I definitely had a moment yesterday when I was like, the bed is hot. The bed is hot. It was just like, the, and it's not even like a fleece. It's just cotton. But the like feel of the cotton mm-hmm. was too warm against my skin. And so I was just like, I can't handle it. And so I put my yoga yeah. mat down on it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my AC only really cools down my living room. So the past two nights I slept in my living room rather than in my bedroom. Makes sense. That's probably best yeah i mean although i feel like your couch is pretty comfy it's not bad it's a yeah. like two inches too short for me oh <laughs> yeah oh that's the worst it's like perfect for somebody right at like six foot i'm just a few inches too tall he's got a little too much yeah too much too much height darn my jeans Do you dangle like your legs over the end so it has a pretty high armrest so uh, I have, my feet and my head are elevated so i'm like sleeping at a weird u shape so it's like it's like a weird hammock like a, yeah. a hard uncomfortable hammock that doesn't swing that's right <laughs> i mean i do have it hanging from strings that are attached to the wall yeah i don't know if they're screwed into a stud but there's been no structural damage yet <laughs> good 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 that's good. That's pretty safe. Yeah, totally good. So on today's episode, we're going to start the new story that we are going to delve into. It is called The Black Patch. And before we get into the story and we introduce our new characters, I'm going to give a little bit of the setting that this story is set in. 
to getting really into the sound effects of Psyched, <laughs> which we're getting transported. I feel like we should have a harmonica. It's also different from the. That was that was. I know. Yeah. Yeah. There's a cool new ambient tune that Glenn put together that is very sexy. I mean, I'm in love with the new gothic theme that he composed. Yeah, it's. I'm I'm super excited because I think it's it's very different from what we were doing earlier and i think it's really really cool like i i'm i'm excited about all the all the sonic elements of this world yeah it is 1908 in america a time of industrialization and great wealth on the east and west coasts while exploiting the heartland for some of its most valuable resources including coal water and tobacco in just the past year more than 500 workers were killed in coal mine disasters. At the start of this year, a fire at the Rhodes Opera House killed 170, while a separate fire at the Collinwood School in Ohio killed 174, and a tornado that ripped through Louisiana and Missouri killed 143. This is just two years after the San Francisco earthquake of 1906 killed over 3,000 while leaving countless more homeless. While archaic laws break under industrialization, creating more tragedies than preventing them, wealthy magnets begin falling into a Bacchanal lifestyle that will continue well into the 1920s, eventually creating the Great Depression. They throw lush, extravagant parties in manors and penthouses built from hard labor. Many of the wealthiest people in the nation control monopolies that will go uncontested for years to come. As part of their extravagant lifestyle, the wealthy hire performers claiming to have mystical powers, including spirit mediums, magicians, and etc. They also take in performances of the grotesque, fully staged executions complete with either fake gore or viscera sourced from slaughtered animals. But even as this is going on, some of the country still fears the power of mystics and so-called witches. In the early 1900s, a woman and her child are burned at the stake in Pilot's Knob, Kentucky, for supposedly consorting with dark forces and using black magic. Also in Kentucky, since 1904, a silent war has been raging, the Black Patch Tobacco War. At the time, almost all distribution of tobacco was handled by one company, the American Tobacco Company, ATC who buys directly from growers and resells to businesses. In a small section of Kentucky and Tennessee, tobacco growers use a special process of dirt curing their tobacco for a distinctive scent and taste. The farmers attempt to renegotiate selling prices with the ATC by forming a union called the PPA, the essential idea being that if none of them sell, then they can dictate the price to the ATC. Ultimately, the PPA does not have unanimous support of all tobacco growers in the region. It is mainly supported by the wealthiest growers who can afford to withhold their product for a time, and also high-ranking slash wealthy members of the public, such as lawyers, judges, and political figures. In order to get the other farmers in line, the PPA forms an inner coalition of vigilantes, referred to as the Silent Brigade or Night Riders. It is rumored that the Night Riders have the support of over 10,000, and they use it to intimidate, destroy property, and assault sharecroppers, especially those of color. From late 1907 to mid-1908, the Night Riders performed large-scale raids on six different major occasions, including putting one entire county under siege for a week. 
At the time in Kentucky, most plantations were communities unto themselves with their own stores, houses, barbers, churches, and the like for their employees. Most farmers, almost regardless of color, were hopelessly devoted to the owner because their entire livelihood revolved around the plantation community. As such, plantations could run their own form of law, superseding the authority of sheriffs and judges. Our story starts in November 1908, late fall. Dark patches of tobacco fields sit amongst rolling green hills and are interspersed with fast-moving creeks that cut deep caverns into the limestone bedrock. It is late at night. A hazy rain hangs in the air, making it difficult to see beyond five feet. We are near a farm, but not a tobacco farm. It has several stables. It appears to be a breeder's farm meant for raising uh, horses for racing and work. As we come upon this farm, we see several workers are coming out of the stable and are digging a trench alongside one of the stables here at this farm. They drive their shovels into the mud. Even as they shovel out the mud, more mud just slops back in as the rain comes down. Out of the darkness in the mist, we start to see a lantern, like a firefly floating, and then eventually a figure riding atop a horse comes out of the darkness, holding a lantern by his side. Paul, if you would like to describe what your character looks like and what his name is. My character's name is Sheriff Harold Comer, and I have a uh, mustache. I am five foot nine and weigh about 158 pounds. I would say I'm about light skin as they come. And, uh, you know, I'm wearing, wearing my uniform, as I always do during my duty time. And currently your uniform has drenched through to the skin because you've been writing for quite a while. You were informed that you should come to the Caldwell Farm, which is a small independent horse breeding farm near the plantation community of New Nazareth. They didn't tell you what exactly it was. It was just one of their farmhands rode all the way out to find you in town. And then before you could even ask questions, he rode back. As you approach the stable where all these workers are, Mr. Caldwell comes out of the stable. He's a older man, probably in his 50s, kind of white receding hairline, a white beard that's got a few flecks of his old black in it, but he's mostly gone white and gray at this point. Evening, Sheriff. Do I have a sight for you to see? Well, let's not take all night. Let's see it. You hop down off of your horse and he leads you inside of the barn. And as you walk down this barn, it's uh, got many little pens for stables for horses to be in. But as you walk down, you notice that many of the stables are empty. Mr. Caldwell is not a wealthy man, but he makes a good living raising racing horses. He's bred some of the most famous horses in the country. So he should have horses all over this stable. Where are your horses? Well, that's the damnedest thing. We were breeding a new stock. I went down to New Nazareth to breed with some of the horses down there. And, well, I mean, you can just see for yourself. And he points down the stable and you see one of the stable hands coming down and he's rolling a wheelbarrow. And at first, you're not sure what's in the actual container of the wheelbarrow at first. It's just sort of dark in the barn. There's your eyes. I haven't quite adjusted. You're just seeing something glistening off of the 
small amount of moonlight that's coming through the slats. But as he approaches and you your eyes fix on this mass inside of the wheelbarrow, you start to realize that what you were looking at is fur and flesh. It is a newly born foal. What the hell is that? And you see what you assume to be at first just a normal baby foal, like freshly born, but it's obviously not alive. It's been stillborn. As he approaches you and as you approach him, more details start to be come clear and you start to realize that there was something deeply wrong with this foal as it was born. It appears that this foal was malformed in the womb. You see that some of the legs are longer slash shorter than the others. You see that one hoof is not even grown correctly. It appears to be actually partway up into the first knuckle on its leg. One of the eyes is further back on that its head than it should be. The other eye is further down. Part of its lip is further back on its head than it should be. And several of the teeth are actually impacted up into the gums. Christ almighty, what the hell happened? Mr. Caldwell just turns and he looks at you and he's like, all of them were born like this. Every single one of the breed. And you see the farmhand that was wheeling out the wheelbarrow turn out of the barn. And you can tell that the men are still working alongside the barn beside you. Occasionally the moonlight coming in through the slats is cut off by like shovels coming up and down, scooping mud out of the trench that they are digging beside the barn. And you come to the final stall and you see a horse lying amidst rotting hay. There is viscous fluid lying upon the floor of the afterbirth from this horse. The horse has foam running around its mouth. One of its eyes is actually turned up in its head, and it's quite obvious that this horse is not going to make it. And Mr. Caldwell turns to you and he's like, I don't know exactly who I'm supposed to talk to about this. It's the damnedest, most unusual thing I've ever seen. Every foal was born like this, malformed. Something evil's happening around here. We might need a specialist because I I don't believe the sheriff's office has ever dealt with anything like this either. And as you say that, Sheriff, you think about a time way back in the past where you went to see a show in town and this performer, he claimed he could make the rain come down from the sky. And you went to see his performance multiple times and you were always intrigued by the enigmatic nature of his performance and he took a a shine to you because you were local law enforcement kind of high up in society and he told you that if you know you ever had a question for him he worked for a place in philadelphia called the keller house i think i know who to talk to well you better get him here quick because whatever this is i'm sure it's this ain't the end of it and as he turns to look at you through the slats in the side of the barn, you see outside along the trench, they dump the full corpses into the trench. They then take tin canisters and they unravel the top and pour out kerosene into the top of the trench. One of the farmhands come over with a torch, drops it into the trench, and a line of fire erupts and black smoke pouring up into the night sky. And as you're looking into Caldwell's eyes, the orange glow of the fire comes through those slats and goes across the barn. And as you look down on the horse that is about to die before you, you see the skin around its belly start to move. And for just a moment, you swear you see a handprint push from the inside.
we're now going to cut one third across the way of the country to Philadelphia. We are not down in the dingy heart of Philadelphia, which is covered from the soda factories and shipyards. We're on the more inland side of Philadelphia, where it's nice and pleasant, where the rich magnets live that control those factories and shipyards that are spraying coal smoke and soot all over the city streets, turning them black. And we are in the parlor of a very wealthy man. It has a sunken seating area, rows of benches looking down into a little performance stage, several wealthy magnets and their wives and the most ostentatious wear of the time period are seated around watching a performance of a certain figure, a Korean man. Earl, if you would like to describe your character and what he looks like. My character is a very impeccably dressed, rather tall, large framed Korean gentleman. (laughs) And he is pretty much full top tails spats he he's pretty much dressed to the nines but not in a not in an excessive way but just in a it's it's almost like it's a uniform he's got you know lovely pressed trousers a coat a vest a very very neat uh little cravat he's basically uh addressing the crowd uh and is preparing something but in this you sort of see him he he takes his jacket off he folds it neatly to the side he rolls up his sleeves he is about to perform you know there's a little bit of a ritual involved to this you're taking your time preparing yourself for this performance and you see that the rather impatient anglos are <laughs> starting to lose the thread a bit a woman says I don't want to talk to my son. I don't even, I I continue sort of doing what I'm doing. There's a slight pause in sort of preparing the things. The actions that I'm doing seem relatively mundane, but but there's a deliberateness to sort of each uh, action. Uh, And I am finally sort of preparing a set of bells and bringing them out. And then uh, I'm assuming there's like a little table in front of me that has... Uh, various artifacts uh, laid out. He was killed in the Philippines. And you see her husband just kind of lean over and whispering something to the effect of, oh, not now, honey. And then I say, "Uh, do you have anything of his? And she reaches into her purse and she pulls out a pair of cufflinks. The cufflinks look like they might have come from some sort of military uniform. Hmm. Okay. Can I get them? I'm just going to. Yeah. Every, uh, they're all like sort of within walking distance of you. It's a fairly intimate setting okay. as opposed to performing. Like a honestly. theater. Okay. Yeah. It's more like a, it's more like a cabaret venue as opposed to a proscenium arch. Uh, it's <laughs> sort of like theater in the round, you know? Okay. Like you're in the middle of the crowd. Great. So yeah. I could just, I'm, I, it's almost like I'm busking. Like I could just reach out. Grab, yeah. pick up. Okay. Um, oh, another thing that I've, that I've said that I uh, that I forgot to say is that I, I do have gloves on. Even having taken everything off, I'm still wearing gloves. Uh, and so when I take the cufflinks from this woman, they are still gloved. Essentially, I'll, I'll, I grab them. I set them down. What is his name? His name was Dennis. Dennis. Let's see. All right. So I'm going to have you roll some stuff here, Earl. All right. I'm going to explain how this works. So on your character sheet, you have a quality, which 
presumably helps you with performance slash mystical abilities. Mm-hmm. And then you have a skill that helps you with your performance slash mystical abilities. Yes. I, be- I believe it's uh, dances for you. Mm-hmm. Dances are the are the phrase. And then insight is the quality. Okay. So you're going to add the two of those together. Okay. Uh, insight is four. Dances is six. Perfect. So you're going to have a total of 10. You have 10 D12s to roll. Now, how do you find out if you succeed? 10 is also the target number that you're aiming for. If you roll a 10 on one of your D12s, you get three successes. If you roll an even number, which is the same as 10, you get one success. So it's even or odd. And then if you match, you get three. Okay. Any even gets one. Exact match gets three. Yep. And then we add up to figure out how many successes you get, determining how successful you are in performing the ritual. Total. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay, cool. So I guess I will begin. Uh, I guess I'll just yell out my my rolls. Two twelves. So that's two successes. Mm -hmm. A six and an eleven. It's three. A twelve and an eleven. Four. A four and an eight. And yeah, that was ten. Yeah. Okay, so you have six successes that you okay. So you succeed at performing the ritual. Yes. Would you like to describe how this ritual occurs? Um, yeah, so essentially I will take off both of my gloves with my left hand. I uh, pick up the bells, a pair of uh, sort of bronzish, very heavy sort of metal bells uh, that are connected by a string that, that will then hang. I'll do like a, like, it's like a little whip that they do and it, and it hit both of the bells clang together very quickly. And so it's like a, a, a large clang. I think it happens about seven times. And then on the seventh clang, at the same time, I will grip the cufflinks. The last uh, echoing bell will sort of allow me to scry off of the artifacts. As you hit that seventh chime and clutch the cufflinks, almost on cue, the gas lights in the parlor dim and the room goes very dark. And for a moment, you nothing seems to happen. But then the people all sitting there with their wine and champagne and their drinks, they start to look around and they see condensation steam coming off the top of their drinks even though it's not warm or cold in this room they keep it at the perfect temperature that they want but this steam and condensation more than that should be coming off of a drink starts to spill across the room and down the floor and filling the little pit stage that you're performing in in your mind's eye you start to think about dennis focusing on these military cufflinks that you have been gifted unbeknownst to any of those people you peer down into the mist and it parts for a second and you see a young man's face lying on the ground staring back up at you you see that he is sunburnt his hair is sweaty and matted to his the, his skull he appears to have some sort of skin rash like he's been in a jungle or a swamp for too long that's kind of peeking up the top of his collar towards his cheek and his cold eyes are just staring up at you dead because he has a bullet hole through his cheek and out the back of his skull i hate to bother you but there are some people that wish to speak to you yes you are dennis correct 
was my name and life. Your aggrieved mother has summoned you back to exchange some words. Do you agree to speak with her? Yes. We'll make a pact. I shall allow you to use my body for the next 30 seconds to communicate what you want. Upon this pact ending, you shall leave and you will return to the ground. Are we agreed? Yeah. Yes. And you see Dennis, the lifeless body of Dennis. He gets himself up onto all fours, but not flipped over onto his stomach on his back in an impossible position that he probably could have never done in life. And the people who are watching this, all they are seeing is this smoke swirl around your feet. They don't see the form of Dennis. And Dennis starts to crab walk his way towards you. And as he reaches out with his foot, he actually steps on your foot, but it passes right into it and he Mm -hmm. starts to become one and leans up, coming to meet your face together as one. Mm -hmm. But then Uh, Dennis starts to stop and he looks over his shoulder for a second. Something's coming. Now? Yes. You see the smoke start to swirl even more around your feet. And the people in the room actually sort of stand up alarmed and the floorboards start to rattle and you see a nail actually pop out one of the floorboards fly up into the air and it hits one of the steps and it dings down the steps clattering all the way down until it disappears in the smoke and then the smoke goes very still something lunges out of the smoke grabs Dennis drags him back down no and the smoke seeps into the floorboards and disappears. And you feel the connection. Dennis is lost. And as you open your hand that was clutching the cufflinks, you see that they have scorch marks on them as if they were thrown into a fire. Oh, I quickly put them down, uh, put my gloves back on and then pick them up and then put them in the, put them in the old lady's hands. He was here for a moment, but he had to go. <laughs> is- is he is he rest is he restful? Is he in heaven? Sure. And we're gonna quick cut with you. <laughs> we're gonna go outside of this mansion that you're at as all these party goers are starting to leave and they're loading into their model T's, which are a fairly new thing on the market, these motorized carriages. And you see a fellow approaching you. He's uh, about forty years old. He's got a nice mustache that he keeps impeccably waxed little soul patch that he's also kept very nice he's got long hair kind of swept back over his head he is a kind of the field commander you might say of the keller house his name is pierre molyneux and pierre is canadian as far as you know he is first nations born So he is indigenous, but he was raised by French speaking. French Canadians, yeah, I was going to (laughs) say. Yeah. But he immigrated a while back to America and he knows some magic. He probably doesn't know as much as you. He is in charge of sending people out on Keller House missions. Mm -hmm. And you see that he has a piece of paper in his hand, looks to be a telegram. So, Charles, uh, I've, uh, I've got a mission for you. We uh, heard some word from this uh, sheriff down in Kentucky that they're having these weird things going on. Kentucky? 
the south. I know uh, you're not necessarily going to fit in down there. So uh, there is someone I want you to meet up with. She's currently uh, down in North Carolina. Another operative? She's an operative as well. She's uh, been in the south for quite a while, so she knows how to handle those people. One thing I did want to mention, we've Hmm. already sent an operative to that section of Kentucky, but they disappeared about a month ago. Were they dispatched to the same, for the same reason? I sent out uh, an operative by the name of Bartholomew Hughes. You don't know Hughes personally, but uh, Hughes, he was there because you heard about uh, herbs growing down in that region that were good for medicinal purposes. Mm. Uh, But uh, yeah, he uh, disappeared about a month ago. We haven't heard anything since. He was in a, a vicinity of a plantation community called New Nazareth. New Nazareth. What was his talent? He was an alchemist, mostly. Mm. Herbalist. You know, herbalist, alchemist. He mm. was good with plants and things like that. I see. Knew a little bit about cryptozoology as well, identifying weird and unusual animals. I see. Well, uh, Kentucky, you say, or North Carolina first. Yeah, so I've got your train tickets here, and he pulls out some tra- tickets for you. And he's like, you're uh, headed out and you're going to look, be looking for a woman by the name of Maeve. And we are going to cut to kind of a small community out in the middle of nowhere in North Carolina. It's a community that's built up around a train station. So it has a lot of travelers coming in and out, farmers bringing in crops and whatnot. But it doesn't really have an identity of its own aside from that. But it does get a lot of travelers, including a traveling wagon, which is offering tarot card readings and helpful spells, claiming to be practicing hoodoo magic. And in the back of this wagon, there's a woman of indeterminate age by the name of Maeve. Krista, if you would like to describe your character and what she looks like. Um, so Maeve is about, I'd say like 5'5", five, five. an Irish woman with uh, long, curly, bright red hair and bright green eyes, freckles. And she looks to be about in her 40s, though her age is sort of undetermined. And she sort of, you know, looks like your typical fortune teller with lots of skirts and scarves and around on her waist as well. She has several pouches and things that hang off with with several tools and, yeah, different accoutrements. A couple of children, probably preteens, 12 to 13, boy and a girl come up to you and they're very cutesy puppy love kind of stuff like holding hands but they're not standing that close to each other probably because they're worried that their parents will take a look over and get upset at them but they come up to you and they're like digging around in their pockets looking for any change that they can find and they're like uh uh how much for for a reading ma'am five cents the boy he reaches into his pocket and he finally fishes out a nickel and he drops it into the little jar that you have and they climb up the steps into the back of your wagon which is nicely enclosed by canvas and probably has all your little herbs and whatnot hanging down from the uh, supports that hold up the canvas in the back the thing is we (laughs) no you say it okay so we were wondering like are we going to be together forever Uh, That's a question that I hear a lot. 
It's something that a lot of people come to seek me for answers for. So let me consult my my cards to see what's in your future. And I take out my tarot cards and start to shuffle them and sort of lay them out. <laughs> so we're going to have you roll some dice here as well. You're doing divination is the skill. Which uh, quality do you think is... I'll go with Intuned. Okay. So... Do you have a plus one written by there? I do. So it's four for Intuned, plus three for your Divination. So you're going to be rolling seven D12s. Because the target number is now seven, you're looking to either match seven or get odds. Match seven or get odds. Okay. Yeah. So I have a nine, seven, two, and three. That's three. And then a nine, eight, and a one. So you got five successes. Nice. So you do complete this divination practice and you start rolling out the cards. I will let you, Krista, decide what the fate of this couple, this young couple is starting to look like. Well, you know, I see lots of struggle and trials and tribulations depending on how you take the path you could have a very successful or it could be a very combative path but it's up to you and how you choose to treat each other and the boy and girl they look at each other just like take a moment to take in what you just said and the boy kind of gets up and he marches out probably didn't want to hear that that he had to work for a relationship like most boys at that age. As he does that, I sort of grab her hand and go, get out of there, sweetie. <laughs> she takes your hand and she leans in after he says that. And she leans into your ear. I know what you are. And she skedaddles out of there. Did I happen to get their information? Are they like locals? Would I know who, who they are? They probably live on a local farm nearby. You probably don't know them by name, but you've seen them around. Mm-hmm. as you kind of take a moment to take in what she just said, trying to kind of discern exactly what she means by that, you hear a train roll into the station. And typically when trains roll into the station, they take time to refill the steam engine with water. People typically get off and it's a good time to sell local remedies or readings. As you kind of step out of your wagon to prepare for that, you see an impeccably dressed Korean man and he's wearing gloves on both hands and upon his lapel is the Keller House logo, the telltale insignia of the Keller House, which is a golden goat head with a K in the middle of it. Where do you wear your Keller House logo? It's like stitched or embroidered on a suede pouch that uh, is sort of like dangling in front of me. Almost immediately you two see each other. You very rarely run into like a Keller House representative by accident, Krista. Mm-hmm. There's usually a purpose for why you would run into another Keller House agent. You stick out like a sore thumb. What brings you to these parts? Uh, Maeve, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. And may I ask who you are? My name is Charles Allen Park. I've been sent by the house. I assumed as much. <laughs> what can I help you with? Well, uh, I've been notified by... Uh, 
Sir Molyneux, that uh, there is an assignment for us down uh, around New Nazareth. Apparently, another operative has gone missing. And then a report has come in of abnormal... Is there any more uh, specifics around the abnormal doings that were reported that were told by, by Molyneux? Do I get, did I get like a report or anything? Or So Molyneux told you that there were reports of animals being born uh, malformed, also people being attacked by the roadside by wild animals, and that their teeth slash claw marks were not matching any normal animal of that region. Great. All right. It looks to be largely cryptozoological in issue, as there are birth deformities and attacks of uh, mysterious origin coming from unidentifiable animals. That's all I have for now, but I was told that you would uh, probably be able to help out. (laughs) All right. Well, I think the first thing we might need you to do is... um... Find some new clothing. <laughs> it's going to be a long, dusty road, and you do stick out a little bit in this. Too formal. Too, a, little, a little too formal. A little too. <laughs> we, we, we like to fly under the radar, at least how I travel. Understandable. Uh, it's, been, it's been a while since I've been outside of the city. <laughs> Any city. It's been a while since I've been inside of the city. I do sort of take off the jacket, uh, maybe take my hat off. I offer you a, a cubby in my in my rolling wagon. It is warm, isn't it? So as you roll up your sleeve, we're gonna cut forward a little bit. Maeve's wagon has been rolled into a cargo container on the back of the train. You two sit down in the sleeper car that you're sharing that is going to take you to Kentucky. And as you sit down, Maeve, you look out the window and you see that little girl is just staring daggers at you as a blast of steam and dust comes up and the train starts to take off and head west. I'm going to have to keep an eye on that one. Hmm? Oh, nothing. Just uh, young teenagers that think they know things, you know. Hmm. Got lots of secrets to keep. I think you know what I mean. (laughs) I do. I can't stop thinking about this very strange interaction I had right before I got assigned to this. I was entertaining affluent groups and I was doing just a simple spirit possession, just to talk to your mom, cry it out, feel better, move on. But it ended uh, abruptly. Something, I don't know, snatched this man. He, he had said, something's coming. Normally, the spirits I communicate to don't have that type of an emotional response. And this one was of palpable fear. I believe something may be further along than just a simple cryptozoological issue. Yeah, I have noticed some a shift, so to speak, in the woods. Crows are acting up a little bit, and I never like when they act up. Are there any uh, magpies in the area? No, lots of magpies. We get crows of all sorts. Very good. 
So we cut away as this train moves out of the station in North Carolina, and we're going to cut to a darkened train station out in the middle of nowhere in western Kentucky, nestled between the rolling hills and dense foliage and trees. Once again, it is raining out, that misty, dark rain, and the train station is basically deserted. There aren't even lanterns lit. Instead, the sheriff is just seated on a bench by himself in the dark a mile off or so. You can see the bright light of the train moving through the mist in the darkness, kind of parting the mists as it moves forward. It takes a long time. It's surprising how long it takes for you to actually hear the train as it approaches. It's basically almost to the station before you hear it approach and break squeal as it rolls into the station. All the lights inside of the train are turned off because you're not exactly sure what time it is, but it's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of two in the morning. As you're seated at this bench at one of the train station, two figures step off of the train, kind of take a look around. And then a moment later, some workers come off of the train to unload something from a cargo container. The two people that have stepped off of the train, one appears to be a large framed man and the other appears to be a woman draped in several different layers of dresses and accoutrement. Howdy. Uh, welcome to New Nazareth. I'm Sheriff Coleman. Uh, who do I have the pleasure? My name is Maeve. Maeve. I'm Charles Allen Park. Charles Allen Park. I believe we've uh, come across each other once before. Uh, I was uh, privy to seeing one of your tricks. You summon water from the rain. Oh. I believe you may be mistaking me for one of my uh, colleagues at the Keller House, but you are in the approximate ballpark. Good thing, then. Uh, well, you, you want to come with me and uh, I'll show you around? That's All right. So the train workers unload the wagon Maeve has, and you have your horses with you. You could hook up the wagon to one of the horses. Just uh, a couple of things to kind of introduce. So New Nazareth is a plantation community. It is not technically a town. It is a community that sprung up around a plantation. Like all the employees and workers of the plantation live there. They either work in the fields, they work at drying the tobacco, or because the tobacco grown around here is dried out over open flames. They have a lot of people working for them to cut down trees and supply the wood for the kilns that they use. Because they did not incorporate as a town, they do not have a local constable. And you have been into New Nazareth on occasion, but only if you are pursuing someone who might have gone through the area. They don't really call you in to do anything. And from what you understand, they sort of have their own internal security force might be the best way to put it. Like their own local posse to handle, you know, if somebody gets too drunk and fires off a gun or if somebody's getting in a fight. Is there like a, an, an organization? Like, is it just a local like posse or is it is there a guy that Paul's character would report to or? Paul's character does not work for this particular character they would technically be getting giving him information i mean like right, right, he, right. like the liaison point of law and order in new new nazareth right um so 
The security forces of News Nazareth is run by one of the sons of the original founding family of this plantation. The founding family of New Nazareth is called the Martells. And the son in question, his name is Washington Martell. He is a fairly well-read and intelligent individual. He actually attended the Kentucky Military Institute before he was sent overseas to serve in the Philippine-American War. And during the war, he says that he was an aide-de-camp to uh, General Blackjack Pershing. During the course of his service, he was also on multiple occasions caught fraternizing with local women in the Philippines and he was dishonorably discharged from the service and he ended up back in New Nazareth. During his time at the Kentucky Military Institute, he did study law, but he's never been a lawyer. He's a kind of a well-traveled, well-read individual that you've kind of bumped loggerheads with because he tries to run New Nazareth like it's his own personal town and that's why he runs the security force estimated population estimated population is somewhere between 250 and 500 it's a little hard to tell because there's like the main um collection of buildings and houses and stuff like that but they also own many of the farms that surround that community spread out a lot okay and I, I'm assuming, so I'm just assuming that this is like all like dossier information that we'd be looking at while we're in the train. You could say that Paul just told you all this information yeah. that I just told you now. Um, on our end, as far as uh, Bartholomew, Mr. Bartholomew goes, was there any other communication that existed before he disappeared? Or was it he got assigned? Never heard back from him. He's been gone since. There are a series of telegrams. The telegraph office is here at this train station that you're at right now, which is still several miles from New Nazareth. But it's like the only line of communication and quick travel in and out of the area. The telegraphs basically talk about he was investigating a flowering vine that they had discovered it in the area when eaten could supposedly remove all sorts of ailments such as arthritis, toothaches, stuff like that. They wanted to check if it was like either legitimate or something they could use to sell. He does state in his telegrams that it's not similar to a known flower that he knows. In his telegrams, he sort of makes the intimation that he at first thought it might have been opium because they didn't know what the flower looked like like mm. you thought it might have been poppies that people were messing with but it's specifically a flowering vine that was growing in the area and he describes that the roots for the vine go much deeper than any normal vine that he had found okay i'm also curious if i would have known him since he is yeah. sort of dealing in like the same realm that i am and we are in the, at least the same like southern region. Go ahead and make a roll a d12 for me and tell me what you get. Mm. 11. <laughs> so, yes, you do know Bartholomew Hughes. You've probably run across him before because you kind of travel the same paths, studying plants. Maeve got over that like 200 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> He knew magic, but mostly he was really good at kind of investigating, 
local fauna and wildlife, dissecting it to discover whether or not it truly was like a mystical species of some kind, or if it was legitimately just a species that was local to that area or hadn't been discovered yet. There are ways to figure that out. And that was kind of his like a tracker, uh, hunter kind of man of the land. Yeah, a little bit. He was actually staying in New Nazareth at a local hotel that they had there. And okay. Paul, you know, that hotel that they're talking about in the telegrams, it's actually the old manor house before they built a new one. The old manor house had been ransacked and kind of burned down during the mm. Civil War. And they built a new one a little further away from the community that was much larger and more grandiose. But now the old manor house has been turned into a hotel, but you've never been inside or anything like that. So I guess maybe we start at the hotel? Yeah, I would believe the hotel where Bartholomew was staying last may be able to give us some answers. His things. Do you know where they might be? Are they at the hotel? (laughs) They would most likely have stayed somewhere in the hotel. All right. We probably would have just put it in a room because Bartholomew never came back to collect it. They're in the hotel, so we're going to go there right straight away. Yes, let's. So you finish hooking up the wagon and you start rolling through the countryside. Charles, after spending so much time in the large city of Philadelphia, it's kind of strange to be out in the middle of the darkness of Kentucky where even the moonlight is being dropped, blocked out by the hills. Mm -hmm. So you're just seeing the glow come over the top of the hills, which are covered in this mist. So the hills themselves are almost formless. You just know there's some rise out in the distance around you. We are not exactly sure where or how large or anything to that nature. And you also sort of get the feeling that if you were to wander off of the road that you're looking at now, you could just as easily fall into a tobacco field or into a swamp. This is rough area that we're talking about here. This is quite wooded. It's very dense. I don't think I remember being around somewhere this wild since I was back home. Isn't it wonderful? Yes. I find it to be like a comforting hug. Some nights you can just look up and see every single star in the sky. You're in the city, you can't see one of them. True. It does become harder to see the stars in the city. Things I've been seeing lately, they don't add up. Yes, we received reports of, uh, how do you say, birth defects in in livestock. Were these defects that were known, that have that have been known, were they, what What were they like? Well, you ever been to the circus? I've seen some pretty freaky stuff at the circus. Women with beards. Man-eating chicken. Exactly. Well, I can tell you that this tops them all. Are there any uh, specimens that we could inspect? I believe there are a few. Have there been any sort of environmental changes that have happened around here? You'd have to ask some of the locals since I don't exactly live around here most of the time, but we can get you all the information you need once we get out to the motel. Yes, yes. Awesome. Uh, it's late. I'm sorry for bombarding you with so many questions. That's been a long, rough day. Indeed. As you are moving along down the road, finishing off your last couple of miles to the hotel, the wagon rocks from just side to side as if you ran over something in the middle of the muddy road. Uh, what is it this time? Sort of dismount the wagon and investigate 
what the bump was. So as you step off the wagon and turn back to look, it's hard to tell amidst all the mud rain that is coming down. It takes a moment for you to realize that you have appeared to have run over a human body. Uh, okay, well, I oh, undo it. You turn over the body and it appears to be a young woman, probably in her 20s, maybe 30s. She was not killed by being run over by the wagon. Her skin, once you kind of clear off the mud, is quite pallid. She appears to have been dead for a little while. Uh, Her skin is also quite cold, but you find marks upon her that suggest that she has been attacked by an animal. Scratches and claw marks up and down her torso, and a section of her throat has been torn open, either by claws or by teeth. Uh, Uh, Can I look around to see if there's any sort of, like... At least from what I can see in the dark, any sort of tracks or or sort of uh, anything in the plant life that looks like someone something or some tracking of any sort. Do you have a tracking skill of some kind? Because I know somebody who does. So, Paul, you're going to use your quality experience, which is five and your tracking, which is three. So you have eight D12s to roll. The target number is eight. So if you get an eight, you get three successes. And if you roll an even number, since eight is also even, you get one success. I really like this, uh, Dan. I really like this mechanic. It's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, Seven. Seven. So that's uh, zero successes on the first one. You're going to do this eight times. (laughs) I'm sorry. All right. <laughs> Nine. That's uh, another failure. Three. That's uh, another failure. Five. It's another failure. Eight. <gasps> okay, that's three successes because your target number is eight. Twelve. That's six or seven. I think that's the seventh. I think that was seventh. I think that was uh, the seventh. Seven. Okay, so you have four successes. So you do find in the mud, even though it's been kind of covered over by wagon tracks and horse tracks, even footprints over the time period, you do find in the tracks what appear to be the footprints of a large cat. And the only large cats that kind of are in this area might be a bobcat, or if you're really unlucky, a mountain lion might have wandered further south out of the Appalachians into this area. But you haven't seen a mountain lion in this area for years. This is very interesting because uh, there ain't no mountain lions out here. Can I uh, try to see if I can find this woman, like her spirit? Yeah. So okay. you're going to do the same thing with the dances. That you yeah, have. same thing with the dances using the insight. But um, because there's a body, I basically have to I, I can't use the bell. Uh, I can't use the bells, but it's going to have to be like I have to bleed on the body. <laughs> I just pull out my my traditional knife and I'm going to cut my hand open. And then I kind of have to squeeze it on top of 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 her basically it's gonna drop on her body and i'm gonna use my other hand to essentially smear uh and try and find her go ahead and start rolling that all right 10 6 1 4 10 oh man you're killing it because your your original number was 10 right yeah 6 2 Oh, you're at 10 successes. Oh. I'm just going to say you succeed. 
<laughs> you rolled 10 twice. You got yeah, I did. I rolled 10 twice, which is pretty epic. So you take out your ceremonial knife and you cut open your hand, bleed a little bit, and then smear your blood kind of across the face of this poor young woman. Sheriff, you've never seen anything like this. Earl, you begin to commune with the spirit of this young woman. You see her spirit rise up out of her body, and she starts to kind of run backwards in slow motion. You see screams coming out of her mouth, but it's all in reverse motion, so it's Mm -hmm. backward, the (gasps) noise. It's like in rewind. Yeah, as you're commuting with the spirit, you're actually kind of adjusting the tracking almost Mm -hmm. on this because things seem a little fuzzy out of focus as you're Mm -hmm. drawing closer to what actually happened and you see something chasing her but it's out of focus it's in darkness and it does not seem that big at first and as Mm -hmm. you start to focus you do see the feline shapes start to come into focus and this darkly colored fur that doesn't quite match a bobcat or a cougar as far as you know. And then as it comes further into focus, you see long fangs that are too long for a animal of its size. Like the fangs have actually come down and through its bottom lip. Oh. And like abscesses and sores have formed around its mouth from the <laughs> lips and gums from the mm-hmm. teeth that are too large. Focus further and you see what look like porcupine quills coming up through and irritating the skin on its back. Like pustules forming around the base of these porcupine quills. Something very wrong has happened to this animal that has turned it into something that it was never meant to be. Yeah. And then as you finally get everything in focus, you let it play in full motion and you see the young woman run into the road and this cat, which is halfway the seat between the size of a bobcat and a tiger, runs her down, jumps on her back, and you see its claws scratching into her, and it grabs a piece of her neck, and it rips it out, and a spurt comes out of her aorta and sprays across the road. And as her body falls and the cat falls down on top of her, pushing her down into the mud with her weight, the bobcat does not stop to eat the corpse. It walks on which doesn't fit any sort of apex predator wouldn't go through the trouble of killing yeah human if it's not going to eat it and it disappears into the the rows of trees and that's where you lose the focus of this channel to this spirit and i sort of snap back into myself there's a chimera it's a beast i've never seen anything like it it tracked her down and i basically explain literally the the path of what i just saw but it didn't eat her something is very very strange it appears also as though it just walked off into that direction as though it was just going about its day who the hell are you people um (laughs) we're the keller house and that ends this episode of dice try and our first episode of the story of the Keller House in the Black Patch. Um, before we go, we should go around the horn. Paul Dixon, plug your socials, anything going on. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, or the Facebook at paulallendixon.com or Paul Allen Dixon in general. Uh, don't put in general, just at Paul Allen Dixon. At- 
Paul Allen Dixon. That's it. General Paul Allen Dixon. <laughs> Dear four-star general, Paul <laughs> Allen Dixon, Esquire Sr. Esquire <laughs> the third. The third. Wait, can you be a senior and the third? <laughs> Earl, what's going on? Plug the stuff. Hang out with me on Twitch, uh, Earl of Samich, S-A-M-M-I-T-C-H. And then Earl of Sandwich on Twitter. We're doing stuff. We're streaming. We're hanging out. We're telling stories. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. I'm really excited about this new arc. Krista Llewellyn. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Krista Llewellyn MUA. I am still trying to figure out a new uh, platform for my live streams. So make sure to look out on Twitch, maybe under that same handle. And then I'm also selling masks and other makeup artist accoutrement at Shop Rogue Etsy. The Etsy is just Shop Rogue. And then you can follow us on Instagram at Shop Rogue Etsy. What about time, you, Dan? Time for Dan to do Dan. What about you, Dan? Oh, well, thank you for asking. I am at Hemingway Light on all the things. Well, Twitter and Instagram mostly. Hemingway Light, L-I-T-E, like a diet soda. Diet Hemingway? I'm going to take what one someone like the Costco brand or the Vaughn's brand or Ernest Hemingway. Kirkland Hemingway. I'll make Kirkland, yes. It would be like a Ford... Uh, probably Ford, something to do with Ford Maddox Ford, I would assume. Yeah, but you'd also get like 40 copies of the of the same Hemingway. <laughs> like, that's, I mean, like, that's partly it. Like, you yeah. just get one short story, but you get 40 copies of the short story. <laughs> you get a palette of them. I mean, this is a very nerdy conversation about <laughs> early American expatriate novelists, you know. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Dice Try. And we will be talking again with you soon. Thank you for listening. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to Dice Try. I'm your host, Daniel Schaub. And this episode's cast has included Paul Dixon, Earl Kim, and Crystal Llewellyn. This production has been edited by Gabriel Toya Melendez with special music provided by Glenn Davis. Please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Dice Try Podcast. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe and review. Diet Hemingway is available on Twitter. Here's the problem I'm finding, though. If you look at Diet Hemingway, it actually, if you read it out loud and the words it's supposed to look like, it looks like Die the Mingway. So... (laughs) Wait, really? (laughs) Kill the Mings. The Ming Dynasty, you're next. (laughs) All right. Close it out, Dave.